Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to, to, to be here. To follow Carol and Diana is, is an honour that I you know, genuinely never thought I'd have. So thank you, Helen, for, for doing that. Well, it, no, absolutely. It absolutely is. So um, I have to also thank Jeff because it just occurs to me, actually, that effective. Now, I'm a, I'm a chemist, OK? Um, you're not going to get, you're actually going to get a little bit of chemistry in this talk, much more than I would normally give in a keynote, because I'm no longer working in the laboratory, but I haven't left the experiment behind. I've actually got some experiments that since we are researchers, I thought we might participate in this afternoon. This is gonna be genuinely very interesting for me and hopefully very interesting for you too. I'm interested in the notion of effectiveness, but I've come to effectiveness very, very late in life and late in my experience of teaching as well. And actually, I think I have to acknowledge Jeff. I thought effectiveness, there are all sorts of things that, that as a chemist, um, you're, you're very naive about. I thought the word effective was obvious. Jeff tells me, or told me some time ago, and it's gonna stay with me and haunt me forever, that the word effective itself is extremely contested in, in educational circles. So I'm not really gonna get into a definition of this, but um, I'm gonna try and explain what it is that I mean when I say effective. Now, I realise that I am here not as a researcher. Originally, the title I suggested was Confessions of a Serial Innovator. Okay? That's what I am. I'm a serial innovator who's desperately trying to find some rationale for their career and their life by backfilling <laughs> first with pedagogy, okay, because I've heard that's a good idea, and then to actually evaluate some of that pedagogy. But I'm coming at this, you know, bottom about face, essentially, and doing it in a very strange way. And in the, way, in the process, I'm accumulating all sorts of interesting insights. And so I thought we'd start off with a question. And that's what this one is here. So essentially what you should be able to do, I'm trying to find my cursor here. What we should be able to do is to, re, is to do that question. Now let me just... Um, Sorry. Sometimes you have technical difficulties. Sometimes you have a whole raft of technical difficulties. <laughs> one of the beauties, and we'll come to flipped teaching in a little while, but one of the, te the beauties of, of flipped teaching is you don't know what's going to happen. And that equips you as an educator to deal with almost anything. Okay? So we're encountering a situation where so far our digital technology has let us down which is kind of ironic, but now I've got control of my laptop again. Hopefully I can bring this bar along here, which will allow me, I don't think you can see this, but I can. Okay. Sorry, what's the ID? So there is no, there is no ID in terms of, uh, of doing this. There is no ID. Oh, here it is. It's on, off the top of your screen, isn't it? There it is. There we go. There we go. Oh, no. Gosh. There's no, this is supposed to be duplicate view. Well, it isn't. I can tell you that much. Okay, so this poll should be uh, open and should allow you to actually answer this question. But I suspect that it's not. Okay, right. Now, what happens? What do you do when your digital technology fails and your analog technology fails? Well, tell you what I do. I revert to the old-fashioned means of doing your hands up. So let's just have this. I think this might be all right after the other one, but at the moment there's some very strange lines appearing on the screen here, which worries me tremendously. Who believes that the plural of anecdote 
is not data. Raise your hand. Now, one of the beauties of this kind of pedagogy is that everybody's got an answer. So it's all right not to answer A, but then you're going to stick your hand up for B. Get off the fence and give me an answer to one of these questions. The plural of anecdote is not data. Okay? And who believes that the plural of anecdote is data? Okay? So we're almost half split down the middle of that, and it looks like somebody's managed to answer this one. So we'll come on to this. No, they don't need an ID because I haven't been able to connect to the internet. No, please, please, please don't change the channel. Please don't change the channel. The channel is by default set up correctly. Please don't try to change the channel um, because it, it is absolutely okay in that sense. Right. Now I can't even advance through my slide. Okay. So I have lost control entirely of my computer. This is very... Yeah, we might have to reboot the computer. No, that won't work. If, if, we, if we go on... Okay, all right, that's interesting. Right! So, thank you very much for that. At the moment, it's working. Whether it continues to work, I don't know. Now, I am... Uh, I come from a background, as Jess has said, as a chemist. Okay? And in our school of physical, our faculty of physical sciences, we have some very keen faculty managers. And those faculty managers are very interested in managing the performance of the faculty within there, the people doing the teaching. And how do they predominantly do that? What measure of teaching are they largely using? Well, what they use in order to make all sorts of decisions, including, I'm told, although I'm, I'm not asserting it definitively for the sake of the podcast, um, hiring and firing type of decisions. And they do those on the basis of the module evaluations. So there are a series of questions posed on the module evaluation on a five-point Likert scale, determining whether um, someone is knowledgeable and interesting, whether they're enthusiastic, whether they provide good support to their students, whether they put excellent resources on the web pages. We are asked those kind of questions. Now what I did is I created a fictional but familiar character, Professor Mimate. Okay, Professor Mimate is like Marmite. Professor Mimate divides the student community into those students who absolutely love them and those students who really don't, okay? So that's the characteristic of this one. And so it's quite interesting what you get if you use the kind of statistics. So what kind of statistics are available once you've got a Likert evaluation? Well, everybody here knows this. They know the limitations of them. I've been trying to convince my faculty of science that the statistic you probably ought to use is the NSS statistic which basically says, let's take all the fours and five and group those as a positive outcome and ignore all the rest as a negative outcome to give you a percentage. And so that percentage is quoted uh, along here. Okay, so it is perfectly possible for someone to get all fours in a five-point Likert scale and score 
100%. And if someone gets all fours, then they're going to have a median of result of four, and they're going to have a mean result of four as well. The interesting cases, of course, are when you have someone who has listened to a presentation from Professor Evans and has gained real courage to do new, innovative, challenging, high-impact pedagogies with their students. Those high-impact pedagogies polarise the student body. Some of them write brilliant qualitative analysis about how they get it, how they can feel how much more they've learned because they've engaged in these high-impact pedagogies. Others say, that's not teaching. Teaching is where you give me the answers, the model answers, and we sit in class and preparate. You've got to week six of a 20-week course and you still haven't given me a past paper to practice. That's not teaching. And it's quite a polar kind of environment of our students that we're having. So some of them who find Professor Marmite's conceptual approach to the discipline quite challenging, we'll give them a, a two. Or let's say they give them a three, let's say they're neutral. Well, we all know that in NSS land, neutral is bad. And so we have a negative outcome for doing this. And so you can have a considerable divergence of doing these things. What happens in my faculty is if an academic averages less than 4.0, so let's take that out a little bit. Averages, hang on, these are labels. They might be one, two, three, four, five, but they're labels. You shouldn't be averaging. This is a physical sciences faculty. They average them. Okay, so they average these labels. And if the average comes out at less than four, then it's highlighted in a spreadsheet in red. This academic needs to take a look at themselves. They are averaging less than four, 3.99, God forbid, on their Likert scale. They need to do something about it. So this is someone who divides opinion amongst our class. I'll show you my own module evaluation results a little bit later. So I'm someone who comes from a very traditional discipline background. I'm a, I'm a chemist, so a tiny bit of biography to explain where I'm coming from. I delivered chemistry lectures, classic lectures, lectures which I originally inherited from senior colleagues. And I did it by standing at the front of the class, waving my arms around, much as I'm doing now, talking quite loudly and giving some spectacular anecdotes about bombs and flames and things blowing up. And the students loved it. They absolutely loved it. They gave me wonderful module evaluations to begin with. Everything in the garden was rosy. I was writing the exam paper. I knew exactly how to prepare them. They were getting their good honours outcome from the examination, as of course they must. They were getting good honours. They were giving me really good module evaluations. I was hitting all the boxes in terms of evaluation of my programme. And yet I had to mark these papers. I knew that although they were getting a pass or a good honours pass mark, they were telling me enough that conceptually, and actually I regard chemistry as a conceptual object, not a content object, conceptually they didn't understand. They could reproduce the knowledge, but they did not understand. And I was unhappy about this, and so I looked into you know, how I might actually address that. So I describe myself as a serial innovator. Okay, before that point, I decided I was going to capture my lectures. And I was capturing my lectures by carrying around a radio microphone, one bag, 
a laptop with Camtasia installed on it, another bag, a digital um, um, relay system, a third bag. And so I was capturing all of these things and the students loved me for it. You're producing screencasts of your recordings. You're putting them up. That's absolutely great. It's the night before the examination. I can binge watch these recordings <laughs> the night before the examination. That's my revision process sorted. Thank you very much, Dr. Lancaster. You know, pat on the back. How the hell does simply capturing a lecture and making it available automatically improve the learning outcomes of your students. In fact, it can have some really quite negative influences. It can allow them to repeat all the things associated with a classic lecture without the enthusiasm. Okay, enthusiasm and charisma, maybe they translate into the recordings to some extent, but not very much. The thing that really doesn't translate is interactivity. If I pose a question to my students, I have all sorts of means to make sure every one of those students is answering the question. I'm not relying on a few teacher's pets at the front to answer my questions. I want everybody to answer the questions. So I'm using lots of methods. That does not translate into recordings of these things. So I spent a few years capturing my lectures, basically for brownie points, okay? For student appreciation brownie points. There was no pedagogy involved, none at all, okay? just for those. Now, of course, I heard about this thing called lecture flipping, which became all the sort of fashion in about sort of 2010, 2011. I thought to myself, oh, that'll be easy for me. You know, I've got all the resources already. I won't have to invest any effort in creating new learning objects. I'll just stick the recordings online, as I was already doing, and ask them to view them in advance. Okay, so you do that, and then you think, the classic question, well, what am I going to do in the classroom? <laughs> oh, I know, I'll have a look, and I'll think of some questions, and the questions are essentially testing whether they watched the video. That's, the, that's how I started my lecture flipping. The questions were essentially throwaway questions, which were doing a little more than testing that the students had watched the video. Okay? That's where I was at in these days, trying to improve upon the lecture by basically inflating the importance of the lecture by first of all showing them videos of the lecture and secondly spending face-to-face -face time reiterating the key points of the lecture. Now this is the kind of data that we really, um, you know, that many of us would want to uh, contest. But let me ask you a question, okay? What proportion of the time are our students actively thinking during the lecture theatre? Now many of you will find all sorts of faults with this question. That's great, okay? That is really good. And we'll come back to it, because I can rationalise some of this, but I would like you to commit yourselves to one of these answers, because this is how we accumulate anecdotal material, your experiences, or more importantly, actually, because you've never measured these things, your perceptions of what your students are doing, collect those together and see how they stack up. I will come back to that, I promise you. Okay, so you've all got devices and it is working, so you should be able to press one of the buttons um, uh, A to F in order to answer this question. Okay, so just press one of those first six. It won't let you change the question. 
So let's just see. This is a sample. These questions are a bit of uh, a bit of fun. No, don't, well, don't, don't be tempted by the siren lure of the new channel. Okay, it's, it's, it's a distraction. Don't let it don't let it pull you in. Okay, so what we've got. You would be over 90%. So there we are. Carol is an outlier, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here this afternoon first. Okay. I'm, you see, one of the beauties of this technique is that it is anonymous. Okay. Now, you are a group of professional, self-confident individuals. There is absolutely no point in me using audience response technology with you. You've all got the courage to stand up for your own principles. So why have I brought these things along? Well, right now, I'm sorely regretting it. <laughs> However, there was a really good reason why I brought them along. It's because the medium so often has to be the message, okay? I wanted you to experience what it was like if you've never used these things to do it. Now I'm thinking they're never going to want to use devices like that on their own. Okay, so... What kind of things was I doing in, in lecture flipping? Well, I told you I was asking what I reckon what rubbish questions, but at least I was asking them in a variety of ways. So we would use clickers. The clickers would fail, and we were using people to raise their hand. But it's chemistry, okay? Active learning doesn't have to be about high technology. It could be about something as simple as having a personal whiteboard and writing on those personal whiteboards. And then if you hold it up to the lecturer, Essentially, if you're holding it up to the lecturer, really only the lecturer can see it. And many people who work like Carol in the, in the teaching industry before they came into higher education would go, hang on, we've been doing that for years. Of course you have. This is a really easy pedagogy to use in the classroom. Now, since Carol, of all people, presented Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a wonderful triangle with absolutely no evidential basis for it, I can present Bloom's taxonomy, which is often presented as a triangle. And of course, famously, there's no evidence for it. But intuitively, this thing is rather attractive. For me, as an educator, I'm actually trying to work here instead of here. Now, that's not very ambitious for higher education, is it? We're told that these things are a pyramid where we're aspiring to it. My students have come to university and passed A-levels because they're good at largely remembering stuff. They are good at cramming predictable answers to predictable questions just long enough to pass the exam. Now, I do have an evidence base for that statement. There's been some wonderful work done at the UEA and... Uh, of course, they wouldn't do it alone because they don't want to label their own students. A whole group of highly ranked research intensive institutions where they take their students and say, here you are, here's your biology A-level exam. Okay? This is September, three months after they took their A-level biology exam. The A-level biology exam that got them into this prestigious research intensive university. So they sit the same exam again. And most of them fail. <laughs> They've gone from A's to E's 
and use in these examinations over three months. Okay? So, you know, one of my big bugbears is we have these incredible syllabus which has loads and loads and loads of content in it. We know our students are good at preparing for the examinations on this content and then they forget it and they go on to the next level and they learn something else at a higher level and forget that. What's the point? You know, really, what is the point in an education system that looks like that, that built on a sort of receding um, sand treadmill? Okay, so I have a question for you. And this is supposed to, this is the reason that I brought these house bricks along. This is where you can actually type in an answer to this question. So for all of you who've got what you believe is a functioning house brick, <laughs> if you can actually type in uh, an answer, what is it, your, your objective for a question closed during teaching? So you are actively engaged with your students. You have them in a room like this, or maybe a tiered lecture theatre. You pose a question to your students. Why? What is the purpose of that question? What is it that you're trying to achieve? Can we only type one thing in? You can, yes, if you, we just stick to one thing. That's, today's not the day to be ambitious. Okay? <laughs> Let's just go for the one. Okay, we've got three responses, I can see that. I'd like, a, I'd like a few more, just to illustrate this. Okay, if your response is tube train or something, you know, completely random, then at least it'll illustrate the technology. Okay, so last time we had nine people clicking an answer. I've got eight, so I'm actually quite pleased with that. Ten. Wow. If I waited long enough, all 20 of them will be working. I won't, I won't, I promise. Okay, now... Six is other in this. So essentially, you can see the way that this works. If you had obvious one-word answers, they would start together. I don't think this is a very clever way of representing this data. I prefer this way of representing the data. So this gives us a sort of, ultimately, it can give us a sort of word cloud type of functionality. Now, why do I use this? I find this a really powerful potential classroom pedagogy. And what do I mean? Well, I'm posing a question to my students. Okay? Now, if I use the classic audience response multiple choice format, I have to know what the possible answers to that question are. And most of the time, let's be fair, I've been teaching this a few years, I know the sort of ideas, the sort of misconceptions my students will come up with. But if I do it this way, I'm crowdsourcing, an expression we've heard quite a lot today, crowdsourcing possible answers to the question. If I crowdsource possible answers to the question, I just might spot a misconception that the students are harbouring that I haven't seen before, or I wasn't aware of. And I had a brilliant uh, incidence of this actually happening on a, on a session, not with students, but with staff. Uh, so I think it was Exeter University, where there's a classic peer instruction question. I'll explain what that is in a minute. But a classic peer instruction question where people say, what is the mass, where, or where does the mass of an oak tree come from? And the classic answers are the soil, the acorn, the rain, and the air. Okay? And I thought, right, well, I'm going to crowdsource the answers. I was expecting to get those four, and I had an answer all prepared. Several people said the sun, which was a fascinating misconception. 
Okay? Now we can understand that the energy comes from the sun, not the mass, but the energy does come from the sun for an oak tree. And it gets us into a really interesting discussion of the science of biology of growing an oak tree. But for years, that question had been a go-to definitive peer instruction question that people have been posing in staff development cases for ages. And not once did anybody say, hang on a minute, you haven't got the sun in the list there. And so this is a really powerful technique for finding new misconceptions. Okay, so what is peer instruction? Who, let's have a show of hands. I'm going to put, who here has encountered peer instruction? Okay, only a few of you. Right, so the key question that we have to ask is what is it we can effectively do on a large scale in a lecture theatre once we flipped that environment? So we're no longer delivering content. What we say we want to do is enhance understanding and higher order skills. How do we do that with a massive cohort of students sat in a traditional rate lecture theatre? What a brilliant pedagogy for doing this. I've described it as the closest thing to magic I've ever done in a lecture theatre, is peer instruction. And the way that that works is you pose a question that is designed to be challenging to your cohort. It's designed to sit in the Goldilocks zone. Now, what's the Goldilocks zone? Well, the Goldilocks zone, you know, Goldilocks, not too hard, not too soft, not too sweet, not too salty. That's the same Goldilocks. The Goldilocks zone in astrophysics is the area in an exoplanet solar system where the water on the surface of a planet would be in a liquid state. So that's the idea of Goldilocks. What does it mean in peer instruction? It means a question that is not too easy. That's what I've been asking for years. Questions that were too easy. If a question is too easy, all you learn is that everybody's done their homework. There is no opportunity for any learning gain to take place in that lecture theatre. If you pose a question that is too hard, nobody knows the answer, and there's no opportunity, apart from telling them what the answer is, to make any progress. In peer instruction, what you're aiming for is a question that is not too easy and not too hard. It's in the Goldilocks zone. It's in the sweet spot. If you do that and you get a mixed distribution of answers from your students, then what you do is shut up and ask them to talk to one another. You ask them to talk to one another about what they believe is the correct answer to that question. That discussion, which Carol so expertly got us doing earlier on, is where the real learning takes place. Then you do nothing but poll the students again. And where does the magic come in? The magic comes in, in very frequently, there's a massive transition between students with a mixed variety to collapsing towards the right answer, without any apparent lecturer-teacher intervention at all. And it's really quite amazing. Now, I am going to do the most ambitious, this is a society for research into higher education. Let's do some research into higher education right now. This is the most ambitious thing I've ever done in my academic career. <laughs> and given the way today is going so far, I'm going to regret it forever. Okay? <laughs> At least until um, next week when, I'm, when I get another chance to make a fool of myself. Right, I am going to teach you something. Or at least I hope I'm not. I've chosen this very carefully. Have you ever heard the old adage, opposites attract? Well, it's true. It is absolutely true. 
opposites attract. When it comes to magnetism, when it comes to electricity, opposites attract. So we can see in this illustration that these two um, opposites, a positive and a negative, are attracting each other. They're swinging together and attracting each other. Now the counter to that is that like things repel. Like things repel each other. So if I have two positive species and they will repel each other. Equally, two negative species will repel each other. There lendeth, endeth the lesson. Okay? Let's see if we can turn that into a bit of peer instruction chemistry. This is the ambitious bit. Right. Rich. Okay? Remember what I've just discussed. This is purely and exclusively a conceptual idea about whether or not opposites attract or like repel. Okay, so this is a neutral lithium atom. Would it be favourable for this neutral lithium atom to make a lithium cation and an electron? Would it be favourable for a lithium cation and an electron to make an um, atom of lithium? Would it be favourable for a lithium cation to lose another electron to make a species of Li2 plus iron? Or would it be favourable for a lithium anion to gain another electron to make a lithium 2 minus iron? Okay? Answer the question. Okay? So don't commit yourselves too loudly at this point. There may well be a chance for you to discuss it, but we'll see. So please answer the question. Okay, now I realise only 10 of you seem to have functioning devices for a variety of reasons. But this pedagogy, the value of this pedagogy, depends... Okay? So I am going to invite people, but you are not allowed to discuss this until you've answered independently. Okay? It's a critical point. So answer independently, even if you don't know. Okay? Have you ever been to the dogs? Have you done your homework or did you just want to flat up for fun? This is engagement. This is getting you to care about the outcome of doing this. So we have nine responses. Remember, this is utterly anonymous. I don't know who's got a clicker. I don't know who's is working. I don't know who's is not working. I don't care. I'm only interested in your collective responses here. So let's go with nine just for the, uh, for the crack. Right. Okay. So we have got 67% of you going for this. Now, there are a couple of ways of doing peer instruction. One is completely blind, because the theory would go that you might well be led by the most popular answer. Okay? Um, I'm not doing that in this case. I'm showing you this because, basically, I like to show it with my students. I don't find my students' rule are led, actually. They're much too bloody-minded to be led by their peers. They need to be convinced by their peers. So... Next thing we do, because this will bring us on to our self-efficacy stream, which I'll come back to. This is an example of what we actually do. We ask our students, how do you feel about your answer? How does it make you feel? Are you confident in your answer? Are you very confident in your answer? Not confident or not at all confident in your answer? Okay. Now, as you'd recognise, you know, um, one way to do I have deliberately not done this blind, but we do actually do this one blind normally in the lecture theatre. Okay, now, that's interesting. That's good from my point of view for this experiment, and you're going to love the punchline when you finally hear it. Okay, so, 
Now, I want you to have a discussion. Okay? Now, I want you to turn to the people around you. Now, nine of you have a chance to answer this. Okay? Don't be led by that. I want to hear what your arguments are. And the most delightful thing about this pedagogy for me is when the colleague in the lecture theatre next door comes in to complain about the noise. Okay? That's the most positive aspect of doing this. People complaining about the noise that my students are making. So in that spirit, I want a vigorous discussion about what the right answer to this question is. Actually, the most important thing that I ever get to do in this demonstration is, is illustrate to people how effective it is to get them talking. And you seem to me, I mean, you may have been talking about something else, it seemed to be people were pointing a vigorous discussion about this aspect of chemistry. It's amazing. You know, that, you know I, I mean, I'm really impressed. So, let's answer the question again. Okay, let's just answer the question again. I promise you I wouldn't say anything. Answer the question again on the basis of the conversation. No, it's not in the least bit a trick question. <laughs> there is a punchline, but it's not because this is a trick question. You wait until you get to the punchline. Is there an answer for this? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got ten responses, which is more than we had last time. So what we've got now is an ever so slight movement by one person, but that's progress, towards the correct answer, which is B. Okay? So, from a conceptual point of view, you recognise that this was as simple as saying these two species are oppositely charged, they're going to attract each other and make a lithium atom. Right, you are absolutely correct. And I am a blindingly good chemistry lecturer because I've got you to say this. Now, why is that such an incredible achievement? The last time I presented this question was in Seville, in Spain, at the UCMS conference to a group of chemistry educators. And do you know how many of them got it right? <laughs> Not Zero. <laughs> Not one of them got it right. Why didn't they get it right? They didn't get it right because at GCSE chemistry, all the way through chemistry, students are told lithium wants to lose an electron. Sodium wants to lose an electron. This there's this anthropogenic thing, first of all saying that it wants to do it, secondly, from my point of view, it's complete nonsense. It's thermodynamic rubbish that flies in the face of the most simple electrostatic principle. So I had tremendous trouble convincing my students that this does not spontaneously happen, even if I show them a lump of lithium metal and say, look, that's stable, it's not spitting out electrons everywhere, because they're taught that lithium wants to lose an electron. It's what we might call an embedded belief. You didn't have that embedded belief, so we could take this from a conceptual basis and arrive at a remarkably high percentage of you with the right answer. My chemistry undergraduates, even using a peer instruction type pedagogy with a question that exposes not a simple ontological miscategorization, but an embedded belief 
there's a limit to what even these high-impact pedagogies can do. So it's worth, first of all, I guess, recognising those things. Now, this is a pie chart showing what um, Anna Wood, at uh, studying or working at the University of Edinburgh, believes goes on during a peer instruction session. So, UK's premier advocate of peer instruction, which of course was popularised and made famous by Eric Mazur at Harvard, is not me, it's Ross Galloway. Okay, So Ross Galloway at Edinburgh is the person to go to if you want to know everything about peer instruction. And he teaches physics through a peer instruction type of pedagogy. And Anna's watching his students, not him. This is peer observation where... <coughs> We, need, we look at the wrong people when we do teaching peer observation. We shouldn't look at the academic, we should look at the students. What are the students doing? This is what Anna's doing, she's watching the students. She's basically looking at the percentage of time they're doing it. If you deliver hardcore flipped teaching with peer instruction as your central pedagogy, then even under those circumstances, 54% of the time, on average, Ross Galloway is talking at his students. So if you're doing hardcore, flipped, active learning pedagogy in your classroom, then still, typically half of the time, you're talking at your students. So when I hear defences of a traditional lecture, which basically say, my students are very active, they're doing things, I mean, people are vastly overestimating the time their students are challenged to think about problems. Because if you go the whole hog, it's still less than 50% in terms of doing these things. Okay, so this is introduction of lecture capture, 2009. This is the introduction of um, what I would call uh, pedagogically um, inadequate lecture flipping. This is the introduction of peer instruction. And these are my module evaluation scores. This metric tells me absolutely nothing about the impact of my pedagogy. Okay? Whatever it is that the students are evaluating, it's not the way I am teaching them. Because it's totally changed during the period represented on this plot. They are judging, I don't know, something else, but not the way that I am teaching them on those things. Okay, so let's finish off with the same thing that... that um, Carol finished off with, which is strange, it must be topical at this time of year, I don't know. <laughs> so, what is learning gain? And this is an interactive question. Do you get to answer A, B or C? What is learning gain? <laughs> Oops, sorry. Now, I, I did have this as a peer instruction question, but I feel we don't have time for it. So, this is going to be your only chance to, to let, us, uh, let us know. Click on the buttons and then let's take a show of hands because it'll be fun, won't it? I really don't want to exclude anybody in getting their, their, their vote in here. Okay, so the learning is... Let's have a show of hands to reinforce this and then I'll press the button. So who believes that the learning achieved by a student between two points in time? Okay, maybe almost a third. The improvement in knowledge, skills, work readiness and personal development made by students during their time spent in higher education. Okay, almost a, a half. And the value added by an institution in terms of the increased likelihood of gaining a good honours degree given a certain range of entry qualifications. 
Okay, well, brilliant. So, I call this the RAND definition from the RAND Corporation's Learning Game Project. I call this the Hefke definition from the Hefke research into this. And I call this the newspaper definition <laughs> because this is essentially what they put in the league tables in, in terms of, of, of doing these things. So, we can all have a, a discussion about it. Now, obviously, you can have this wrapped up amorphous thing. I'm interested, as Carol is, in what the impact of my pedagogy is, what the effectiveness I've used in the title of my pedagogy is. How am I going to get at it? Because I cannot use the final examination questions, because I'm writing those final examination questions. And they're wrapped up in all sorts of biases. There's all sorts of problems with, with doing that. And basically, frankly, I'm moving the goalposts. I started off by examining my students' um, ability to recall facts. I'm now increasingly examining my students' ability to solve problems. I don't have a control group in terms of doing that. Okay, so, right, so at UEA what we're doing is we are looking at three, uh, let's call them independent, uh, measures of learning gain, or maybe not measures of learning gain, depending on your perspective and your philosophy. The classic one, which of course at the moment, there's a huge problem in higher education because everybody gets a good honours degree. So what do we do? Do we start to measure the percentage getting first-class degrees instead of just that you know, tired old uh, upper second degree? Soon, of course, that'll mean that the first everybody's getting a first-class degree. Then what do we do? So we create a grade point average system which has great <coughs> nuance in it. Now, one of the criticisms of the grade point average system, of course, is that it doesn't have the differentiation at the top end. Well, that's fine. Oxford Brooks have already solved that problem. You just add some more categories at the top end. All the time, you have a metric-based system that you can just inflate the grades at the top end. You push things in the same direction. You push things in towards a, a just ever-inflated grades. So grade point averages, this is my personal opinion, grade point averages are not the answer to the problem of degree classifications. They are an extension to the problem of degree classifications that would guarantee that grade inflation lasts another couple of decades. Incidentally, for the sake of the podcast, there is no grade inflation at UEA. Okay? All right. Okay. Self-efficacy. Self-efficacy, we've heard a lot about, against this idea of the, that we can actually look at the way that confidence, that students' confidence improves during the course of a degree. Is that a proxy for real learning gain? Okay? Now, I'm interested in using something called concept inventories. So what are concept inventories? Well, concept inventories are essentially multiple choice tests. But they're not your classic multiple choice tests. They are multiple choice tests where the questions have been created from focus groups which are examining students' conceptual understanding. You then create a question and you send it to a panel of experts. And that panel of experts are assessing and validating whether the question answers or question addresses what you hope the question addresses. You then take an enormous body of students, maybe a thousand students, and you give them that test. And you see whether each individual item in the test behaves in a similar way, whether they're statistically reliable instruments. Then, and only then, do you use them to benchmark some kind of intervention. Now, there's a famous concept inventory, the force concept inventory in physics. 
Now, my experience is, Ross Galloway is a physicist, my experience is that in, certainly in the physical sciences, the physicists are way ahead of everybody else in terms of pedagogical educational research. They're way ahead of doing this, and they use these things to find that A deficient, the learning gain from one moment at the beginning of the course to the other. Now, proper use of a concept inventory is a challenge. So I've got a slide which sort of illustrates the concept that I'm getting at here. <laughs> I first wanted to use concept inventories in chemistry uh, about three or four years ago. So I, I went to the... the um, the teaching chemistry, the variety in chemistry education conference, and said to my colleagues, look, I've sourced this concept inventory. Shall we use it to benchmark chemistry teaching across the country? We could give it to them at the beginning of their degree program. We could give it to them at the end of year one. And we could see how, how there was an evolution and look for differences in practice, at least become familiar with the idea of using a concept inventory. And my colleagues were like, I don't like the questions. But hang on, these questions have been gone through a rigorous evaluation process and multi-steps. Oh, I still don't like them. Um, uh, can I use it diagnostically? Can I look at the answers and then immediately adjust my teaching for them and then give them the exam at the end? No, please don't do that. That misses the opportunity of getting any kind of control and seeing what happens. So what I found is it's actually incredibly difficult to get people to stick to a certain pedagogy. So when I'm asking questions like, how do you measure that? How, if you identify, if you go for a rigorous analysis like Carol, and you say, I've done the analysis, I know what high impact in, to use in this context with this community, then quite reasonably, the community say, oh, can we test that? And they'll do it, but then the practice will differ. People will implement it in different ways. People will teach to it. People will compete with one another to get the best possible outcomes in doing these things. And it becomes very, very difficult. So what have I done? Well, I'm a bloody-minded individual, okay? So I took a specific bonding concept inventory and gave it to my students on week one of their degree program. They all took it. There was ethical consent for this, by the way. They all took it, put it in a filing cabinet, and forgot about it for eight months. Then we gave the students exactly the same concept inventory and they completed it again. And then I gave those answers to a, an independent intern from the School of Economics who graded them all. Okay? And we then looked at those results. There was no inspection of what the students actually got after the first sitting of these things. Okay? Only after the course was completely finished did we do it. And so with a concept inventory, normal measure that you compare is something called normalised gain. Because if your students are all doing um, spectacularly well at the beginning, there's not much headroom for them to actually make an improvement. So what we measure is not the absolute improvement in percentage terms, which is what's often cited for examinations and things, it's the normalised gain in here. And this is the formula for a normalised gain. So if a student gets 75% second time round, and 66 the first time round, then that is, the normalised gain is, uh, what, 9 over 34. Okay, so that's this where this figure comes from in our calculation. Now, we did that for our chemistry students, and we got a value of 0.19. Now, it's the first time I've ever done anything like this. So I had to go to my physics colleagues and say, is that any good? 
does that actually constitute um, anything meaningful? And they said, yeah, you know, that's a very respectable learning gain for your course. Actually, if you do regression analysis on the statistics, which my economics colleagues have done with us, we find that this, um, that what we find is that the students who are weakest, who did poorest in the first assessment, see the biggest gains, have the biggest ones. So whatever our pedagogy that we're having in the classroom, okay, it is having a, a beneficial effect, apparently, on the weakest students. And if our goal is for everybody to get a good honours outcome, I suppose that's a good thing. In parallel to that, not on those questions, we've developed a set of amateur concept inventory conceptual questions. And against those, just as I have with you, we're asking the students what their confidence is. So we ask them a question, how confident <coughs> are you? We ask them a question, how confident are you? Then collect that data together and analyse it in the sense that do are, is a student who is above average on the test above average in terms of the confidence and look for a correlation. That's Fabio Arico's measure of self-efficacy. And what we find is that, yes, actually, in at least most of our concept quizzes, if I can call them that, because they certainly deserve to be called concept inventories, in these concept quizzes, we do find a positive correlation between confidence in the right answers and doing that. What I like to do, and I haven't been able to do it yet, is to actually start looking for that correlation, that magic thing. Concept inventories are not a solution to Hefke's problem of how do you measure learning gain. If they were, they'd cost a lot of money to develop and they would be effectively very high quality standardised tests and you and I would gain them. We would teach our students how to do well in a concept inventory. And the notion of purest notion of actually finding out what works so that we can improve higher education would be lost. But that's where I've been coming from, trying to actually evaluate something, not necessarily so that we can get a higher grade, but so we can actually learn whether, for example, peer instruction deserves to be on Carol's list as a high-impact pedagogy or not, with an evidence base. And these are the acknowledgements. Thank you very much. Thank you.